Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic papal tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. If you ever was a devil bought that in harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. What do you think of when I say the word alchemy or alchemist? If you're like most people, you probably think of the medieval quest to turn lead into gold, which seems a little silly and weirdly capitalistic, right? If you're more into esoterica, you might consider alchemy to be something of an ancient spiritual movement that was all about transformation. Not of lead into gold, but of the base self into the higher self, kind of like practical transcendence. I'm here to tell you that both views of alchemy and alchemists are incorrect, or at least they're incomplete. And those two popular narratives of alchemy being about making gold out of non-gold and of alchemy being about making yourself into like a well-rounded nice guy instead of a dirtbag miss a much larger and much more interesting story. A story that has some surprising and very important implications for us right now on this threshold between the old era and what's imminently to come. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. Okay, so who were the alchemists and what were they actually doing? They were scholars and in some cases government-funded investigators all across North Africa, the Middle East, Europe, India, and many parts of Asia who were trying to figure out the mechanical and natural whys and wherefores behind a consistent observation that people had been making for centuries. That observation being, quite simply, that sometimes certain substances could transform into entirely different substances. This widespread cultural obsession with the mystery of transformation probably originated in Bronze Age Egypt with bronze, which is an alloy or a man-made metal created by combining the naturally occurring metals copper and tin along with some other minerals. It really can't be overstated how big a deal bronze was. It was much harder than its parent metals, yet it was still like relatively lightweight which made it an incredibly useful metal for weapons, armor, and for creating components of vehicles like axles and wheel hubs that could stand up to use over much larger time spans and much longer distances of travel than wood alone. The discovery of bronze fundamentally changed everything about humanity, how we interacted, how we traded, how we made war. 
The technology of metal alloys lifted humanity out of the Iron Age and gave us the leeway to develop societies that didn't need to focus exclusively on barebones survival and instead could pursue inquiry into the laws of nature. It allowed us to begin figuring out how the world around us worked. The chemist is not concerned with efficient procedure. He is not concerned with costs and profits. What he principally wants to know is, does the reaction go? Will it work? When his studies are through, he has a sample of something, something better, or something that never existed before. Now, I am no historian, but I assume it was the important place bronze held in the imagination of humanity that led to the discipline of alchemy. And it was a discipline. People studied for many years as apprentices under accomplished alchemists to learn the principles and methods of transformation. See, humans had been observing for the entirety of human history that some substances changed in noticeable ways under certain conditions. Whether it was metals developing colored patinas when they were exposed to the elements, or stones developing like a dark varnish on their faces, or certain kinds of rocks fizzing and dissolving if you drop them into an especially tart-tasting wine, humans had known for a long, long time that under the right circumstances, substances that otherwise retained fixed characteristics could be induced to change, sometimes drastically. And the goal of alchemy was to figure out why things changed and how those processes could be understood and harnessed for the benefit of humanity. Chemistry is working in a lab with small quantities of chemicals, moved, measured, mixed by hand. Alchemists kept careful records of all their experiments. They created special tools that would allow them to experiment with minerals and plants and heat and air and water in ever more intricate ways. They built on the observations and knowledge of generations of alchemists who'd come before, and they shared their knowledge with one another across borders so that alchemists in Egypt and Greece and Baghdad and China and Prague and London were learning from one another as much as they could manage back then. This wasn't some silly, ultimately inconsequential quest to turn lead into gold for financial benefit. This was a very serious, scholarly, orderly pursuit of knowledge of the universe. Why does the world work the way it does? That's what alchemy sought to understand. Chemistry uses tabletop apparatus, usually glass, to explore the basic conditions of a chemical reaction. For all the thousands of years of diligence by countless ancient alchemists, alchemy was always doomed to fall short of its goal of understanding how the world worked for one simple reason. It took for granted that the old Greek model of nature was correct. The idea that all things were composed at the smallest level of the four classical elements. Water, air, fire, and earth. As long as the discipline of alchemy clung to this dogma of the four elements, it couldn't proceed beyond its present state. And every conclusion it drew about the nature of reality and about the observed effect of transformation was fundamentally incorrect. It wasn't until the late 18th century that a French alchemist named Antoine Lavoisier figured out how to prove that air, far from being elemental and therefore whole, which means not comprised of any smaller parts, was in fact comprised of lots of smaller parts. Lavoisier discovered air, real air, the combination of various molecules that we know to be air today. His discovery upset thousands of years of established knowledge, disrupted entire power structures, and fundamentally changed the way humans understood the world around them. In very short order, within just a few decades of Lavoisier's discovery, 
alchemy fragmented into several different schools of thought, new investigations into transformation and the nature of reality were taking place, and humanity's knowledge of the natural world exploded in a sigmoid curve. The discovery of air kicked off a crisis in alchemy, and that crisis accelerated at an exponential rate. The vertical thrust of that sigmoid curve dragged Europe, Asia, and Africa into a new era, one we now know as the Enlightenment, and it gave rapid and almost catastrophic birth to all the branches of science that we know today. First among those branches, and the direct descendant of alchemy, was chemistry, which is, as we now know, the real force behind the transformation of some substances into other substances. People who lived at the end of the Age of Alchemy and the beginning of the Age of Science witnessed a radical transformation in their own lives, in the ways they considered and related to and moved through the reality around them. Can you imagine what it must have been like to live half your life in a world that trusted in and relied upon the classic elemental theories of reality and then, in a fiery cataclysm of unmaking and creation, to find an entirely new understanding of reality burning all around you. It must have been like witnessing the birth of a star. When people put me on the spot like that, I always blank, so it's no big deal. It's like when people ask me what I've read lately that I love, I have to have a list right next to me, or I forget, and then I feel bad. Me too. And I read a lot of stuff that I love, but then I'm always like, uh. <laughs> I'm like, I'm really sorry, friends. I It's not that I didn't love your book. I just completely forgot the title. Like, <laughs> This is my friend, Paulette Kennedy. She's the author of two novels so far, Parting the Veil and The Witch of Tin Mountain, both of which I absolutely loved. She also has a new novel coming out March 5th, 2024, called The Devil and Mrs. Davenport. I love Paulette's rich, atmospheric writing, and I especially love the way her characters just accept the paranormal and the unusual and the magical as everyday parts of their ordinary, day-to-day -day lives. Although Paulette is relatively new to the fiction scene, I find so much resonance and power in her characters and prose and in the important themes she puts into her work that I feel sure she's destined to become one of the big superstars of historical fiction. And I think people who like this podcast will especially love Paulette's work because of that weird thematic element that she does so well. A while back, Paulette and I talked about The Witch of Tin Mountain, The Devil and Mrs. Davenport, and many other interesting things. As usual, the conversation took a few interesting turns. So your, uh, your most recent novel just came out about a month before we're recording this. Um, the Witch of Tin Mountain, which I fucking loved. <laughs> totally into it. Uh, it's like a gothic, like 1930s Ozark gothic with dual timeline and I, I kind of, I sort of call it magical realism, although that's kind of like in the realm of like Latin American fiction. But like mm -hmm. that same similar vibe where you have people, characters who, for whom magic is like a part of their daily lives and they're just using it as a normal thing. Um, and it's not like, ooh, supernatural. It's just like, this is what we do. Yeah. <laughs> this is how we cope with reality. Yeah. Um, do you have any any like background with that or is it just something you were interested in or like tell me how you how you came up with the idea for the witch of tin mountain 
Well, there were lots of different inspirations for it, and I don't necessarily have a background in Wicca. I did kind of dabble as an adolescent, which I think a lot of girls do that a little <laughs> right. bit. Right, who didn't? <laughs> yeah, especially in the 90s, you know. Yeah. We had like this whole like culture around that um, in the 90s is kind of rebellious. Uh, but mostly it came out of my desire to write about where I was from and the Ozarks and also to incorporate some of my dad's stories. He grew up during the Great Depression. Um, I was a very late in life child for him. He was 52 years old when I was born and I'm 48. So there's some math. (laughs) But it was more or less so that I could kind of talk about what it was like growing up in the Ozarks and uh, introduce people to a part of the country that maybe they weren't too familiar with and incorporate witches because there's kind of a mystical element to the Ozarks. Uh, There's a lot of natural geology there that lends itself to kind of talk about magic and ley lines and magnetic fields and things like that. Um, Eureka Springs, Arkansas is supposedly a a spiritual vortex kind of situation. So the Crescent Hotel is there and it's one of the most haunted hotels in America. Fun. So it it was a great setting. And so the witches kind of grew out of that because there are a lot of holistic and natural health um, gurus and healers in that part of the country as well. And uh, I really did a lot of research on granny women and midwives and green magic for the book because I did want it to be a very grounded magic. I didn't want it to be like a high fantasy type of magic. So it was really fun. Uh, incorporating both my dad's stories coming out of Tennessee into the Ozarks, which is where I grew up and having all of that come together. Oh, that's so cool. I've got, um, I've got a novel coming out under my Olivia Hawker pen name this fall. That's also set during the great depression and partly takes place in, well, in the Appalachian region, not in the Ozarks specifically, but um, in Kentucky and Harlan County. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was so fascinating to research like, just that old, old culture of like the folks who settled in those Eastern mountains and developed their own unique culture there. And yeah, the stuff about like granny women, I didn't research it nearly as much as you did because it only, there's like one chapter with a granny woman in my book. That was it. So I didn't do a ton of research for it, but what I did do, I was like, oh, I could do this forever. (laughs) It was so interesting. It's just like, yeah, the role they played in those societies, the, the granny women and like how they kind of wielded power a little bit like not overtly or anything but you know having that that control over fertility for for women and being able to you know either help with with achieving a pregnancy or ending it as needed was uh was really interesting like all the papers i read about the role of granny women in in reproductive health in those communities was just like oh it's so cool it is so cool they were kind of proto-feminists in their way um yeah and it, it is kind of fascinating. And the reason why I kind of set things up the way that I did, uh, people come to Deirdre and Grace Lynn for help, but then they're also the first people that they suspect when something starts going wrong yeah. because of some of the reasons that you mentioned. And that's kind of been borne out through history as well, that so-called uh, cunning women or, or wise women were the first to fall under suspicion if a strange illness or if a child was lost. And so it was a very risky thing to do to be a granny woman in that sense as well. It was a very self-sustaining way of life, especially during the depression when so many people couldn't afford doctors. 
Um, but it was also kind of a risky situation to be in as well, uh, because they were kind of on the fringes a little bit. Yeah, for sure. What was, what, was there anything that surprised you when you were researching for the Witch of Tin Mountain? Like, did anything jump out at you as like, oh my God, what the, the hell is this? Or was it all relatively even keel for you, the research process? Nothing really was super surprising, but one thing that surprised me when I was reading Vance Randolph's um, histories of the Ozarks, and especially about the folklore and superstitions of the Ozarks, there's rumored to be a burning of a witch in the in the 1920s. Really? Yes, wow. in the Ozarks. Um, it was kind of one of those things that was kept under the radar. Um, this woman just kind of disappeared, oh. but it was rumored that she was burned as a witch yikes and so that kind of opened up you know the whole possibility I don't want to give spoilers away for the book but uh the code of the hills is something that's very much still in effect in the Ozarks and in Appalachia and people um who kind of run up against local power structures and people and such can find themselves subject to this kind of uh quote unquote, hillbilly justice. And yeah. <laughs> um, now it's more fixated around drug culture, methamphetamines, especially, but you know, back then it was bootlegging, yeah. you know, that was the source of under the table income for a lot of people during the depression, um, because prohibition was still going on until 1935. Yeah, but you know, the, the biggest thing that surprised me was just how unchanged things in the Ozarks have been over the past century or so from the colloquialisms all the way down to like traditions and uh, different aspects of culture and community in the Ozarks especially in the rural Ozarks has remained fairly unchanged. Yeah that that is a really fascinating aspect of it that its roots go back so so far like to some of the earliest white settlers from you know, Scotland and Ireland, who all kind of planted roots there and then just kept going with those traditions that they had brought over from their homelands and merging them really with like the indigenous people in the area and other people who would come in to settle. Like it's it's its own thing. And I find it really fascinating, uh, like this completely separate subculture within within America, kind of how Mormonism is like its own separate thing that like exists in this broader structure of of American culture. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's I think it's really interesting. Did you ever did you ever experiencing experience anything really weird when you lived in the Ozarks? Um, never anything that really stands out. Although, and I I talk about this a lot with like the supernatural type experiences I've had. You know, I lived in a haunted house when I lived in the Ozarks. It was it's more like with paranormal stuff that I've had more experience with. Um, I lived in a haunted house. I bought a haunted house. And so I had experiences there that I could not explain. Um, but I also like remember whenever I was a teenager, I was talking to one of my friends on the phone and it was a, you know, a landline because that's all we had back then in the eighties. Yeah. And I was just talking and this picture just flew off the wall. Like it just flew Ooh. off the wall. And it was really bizarre. And I've always wondered, you know, was it just my teenage hormones that were causing this? Because, you know, they say that's a big source of poltergeist activity. But yeah. that's probably one of the weirdest things that has ever happened to me while living in the Ozarks. Um, I can't really think of anything super witchy, although we just had a lot of like family traditions, uh, 
and superstitions that are kind of like farmer's almanac kind of things. Like my mom wouldn't allow me into the kitchen if I was um, menstruating, you know, because I might ruin the canning, you know, just by touching whatever they were cooking, Um, things like that. Or like to get rid of warts or boils, you cut up a potato and bury it under the light of the full moon, things like that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But never like full on like witchy type stuff that I can remember. But, you know, my dad's stories made it into the book and he had some very interesting experiences, although those took place in Appalachia when he was in Tennessee, not in Ozark. But we have a lot of regional legends and things like that, like the Joplin Spook Light, for example, is a big one. Yeah, I ask because as somebody who is very interested in weird weird shit, as I am, mm-hmm. um, the Appalachians and Ozarks are kind of like ground zero for the weirdest stuff in in American folklore. Um, and have you ever have you ever seen a documentary series called Hellier? No, I haven't. Oh, you might find <laughs> it interesting. It, it is about like the weirdness of the Appalachians uh, of the cave system that's like under oh, that yeah. that that mountainous region like running all through Kentucky and you know out into across the region and and just sort of like tracking strange reports of things that happen there and it is one of the most fascinating documentaries I've ever seen like it just goes to places where you're like whoa I did not see that coming (laughs) but it's it's made me very interested in the region in general Um, and we drove through it recently we went to a friend's wedding in in uh, Florida and coming back we went through like parts of Tennessee and you know, we're able to see the mountains there and it's a, it's a beautiful country. It's so gorgeous, but it is very like mysterious looking. <laughs> yeah. It's very mysterious looking and it can be very isolated. There are some roads uh, going through, especially in Northwest Arkansas that are so curvy and hilly that it's scary to drive them at night because there are no guardrails on some of these side roads. And, and like, there's a gully that just drops off into nothing, you know, yeah. <laughs> right next to the road. So it, you, your imagination can kind of go wild in situations like that too. Because when I was a photographer, I shot a lot of sessions and weddings in Northwest Arkansas. And so I was always driving back and forth from there to Southwest Missouri and sometimes it would be like getting dark and I would imagine like all of these strange scenarios like with the, the way the trees kind of encrouched over the road and such. So yeah. <laughs> Writers are always imagining stuff. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it never fails. It. I, I love that you used to be a wedding photographer. I actually used to do that, too. I did it for like five years uh, oh, wow. in the early 2000s. Yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of work, though. Oh, yeah. my God. It was oh, so yeah. draining. <laughs> it was yeah. just, like, constant. <laughs> I needed three days off to make up for shooting a wedding on the weekend. And as I started getting older, I knew that I couldn't continue to do it. It was not going to be a sustainable career for me into yeah. my elder years. So that's kind of why I started focusing a little bit more on my writing and pushing for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's nice. It's a privilege to be able to, you know, capture images of of such a such an important day for people. But I also oh, man, I had some I had some moments (laughs) as a wedding photographer where I was like, I hope you two divorce rapidly, (laughs) like trying to keep it together. But inside my head, I was like, man, fuck you. You're terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I loved my clients, but like sometimes some of their family members could really test me. I remember one time uh, I was shooting a wedding and, and some other person was there with like a photography rig and 
And uh, I was like, I don't know who this person is, but maybe it's like someone's uncle who's really into photography, whatever. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. So I'm shooting things and, you know, getting people together for group sh- group shots and everything. And this woman comes up to me and she's like, hi. I'm like, hi. And she's like, I'm the photographer's wife. And I said, oh, really? I'm the photographer. <laughs> Didn't know we were married. Nice to meet yeah, you. <laughs> so, so it turned out that um, that the couple had hired me. And then the groom's mom had just randomly hired a photographer that she liked because she wanted to make sure the pictures turned out a particular way. So I was like, oh, wow, this is awkward. So I got together with the other photographer and I was like, look, here's the deal. And he's like, oh, my God, I had no idea the couple hired you. Like this woman just told me that that they tasked her with finding the photographer. I was like, yeah, they hired me. So I was like, so we got to like work together on this to make this run smoothly. (laughs) So our clients don't freak out. (laughs) So that was fun. (laughs) That really required some thinking on my face. Yeah, (laughs) I can imagine. I've never had that happen, but I've had like videographers sometimes. uh, (laughs) There's a little bit of a competition that happens sometimes between the photographer and the videographer about getting the right shot. And videographers tend to have a lot more equipment and, tend to be a little bit more visible so it's kind of hard to avoid keeping them out of the frame when you're shooting your pictures yeah but I ended up working with my best friend who was uh, the videographer for our partnership with wedding uh, packages and that worked out really well because we worked together extremely well oh see that's that's the dream team that's the best way to do it when you're like on the same side as (laughs) as the videographer (laughs) because yeah otherwise it is just like a battle <laughs> you can turn into a pissing contest really quickly yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what is you have the devil and Miss, mrs davenport coming out next spring is that correct yes um i i don't have a date yet a release date yet but early 2024 is what they told me when i signed the contract so oh it's gonna yeah. be so cool i'm really excited for it tell it give us a rundown like the the elevator pitch for the devil and mrs davenport Well, it takes place during the 1950s, and it's about a homemaker who ends up developing um, psychic abilities after a short viral illness, and those abilities make her question her faith, her marriage. They kind of send her on a journey of self-discovery, and it's more or less, it's, it's a little bit of a quieter book than The Witch of Ten Mountain, but it has a lot of similar elements. It takes place in the Ozarks as well although it takes place in a town that's based loosely on my hometown, which is Springfield, Missouri. Um, So it's kind of more of a middling college town um, setting. And uh, the main character, Loretta, her husband is a Bible school professor. And they are kind of assemblies of God, Pentecostal. um, And so it explores a little bit of how Loretta reconciles her gifts with what she's always been taught about such things in her faith. And it's kind of an exploration of self-discovery. Oh, that's really cool. I mean, it sounds great. I'm obviously going to read it because I've loved both of your other books too. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in this one. I, I tend to like, I tend to go for the kind of quieter fiction that's very internal to the character. Yes. Um, so yeah, I'm really like looking forward to this. And the 1950s setting sounds really fun. I feel like that's, that's something that's coming in historical fiction. You know, I feel like we're going to be moving towards that as a trend at some point here um right now it's very like 1920s 1930s which makes sense um 
uh, we've we've gone through some rough times. So you know what better way to explore that in fiction than to write about some other rough times? Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. in the 1950s, by and large, that was a period of prosperity for America. But there were some there were certain things that were happening socially that were very dramatic, especially with the civil rights movement and women's place in the home and women's place in the workplace, because we had just come out of World War II, right? And a lot of women had joined the workplace during the war while their husbands were away. And then when their husbands came home, they were suddenly forced back into that role of homemaker. And that is kind of where we got the root of the women's rights movement. Um, it started, we had those stirrings. Uh, Betty Friedan published The Feminine Mystique in 1963, and that kind of got a lot of things rolling. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there, there are a lot of really fun things to explore in the 1950s, a lot of little-known history there to explore. We, of course, have the Red Scare and all of that as well, McCarthyism. But yeah, I kind of wanted to write a quieter story with this one, but still have it be compelling. And I was very much inspired by Shirley Jackson with this novel too. Oh, I love Shirley yes. Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Shirley Jackson was a huge influence on this novel. There are Shirley Jackson Easter eggs all throughout the novel. So someone who is a big fan of her work should be able to pick up on those. Oh my God. Um, now I'm even yeah. more excited. This is great. <laughs> my main character is loosely based on Shirley, but very loosely. Um, but she's also a writer. And so she, part of her self-discovery is her coming into becoming a writer. Um, and so it's been really fun to craft that novel. Oh, that's so cool. I had no idea that you were like using Shirley Jackson as some inspiration for this one. I totally love her work. And I feel like she does not get enough, enough recognition for how good of a writer she actually was. Yeah. Like, you know, she's, she's on everyone's, everyone's like, oh yeah, Shirley Jackson, she's cool. But like, but do you really get how cool yeah. Shirley Jackson is? Like really dive into her work and it's so atmospheric yeah. and just like emotional without being over the top and melodramatic. Like, yeah, she's fantastic. Love her. And also, you know, I'll just say this, you know, her work kind of reminds me of yours a little bit too, in oh, the sense that thank you. of how you construct your sentences, like on a, you know, she, she did a lot of really creative things with how she constructed her sentences and wrote her narratives. She broke a lot of rules and she kind of made things a little bit unique that way. And whenever I was writing this novel, I've been going back and rereading some of her catalog and some of her lesser known works like Hangs a Man and The Road mm-hmm. Through the Wall and works like that, that maybe didn't get a, a lot of attention like The Haunting of Hill House. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to see how many levels there are to her writing and Yes, she wrote horror fiction, but she also wrote a lot of domestic fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a side of her that I don't think many people really talk about. But she was a very devoted mother. She had four children and she was a devoted homemaker at the same time that she was an author. And she wrote a lot about her experiences as a wife and mother. Um, And those actually sold better than her horror fiction. (laughs) whenever she was alive. Uh, She didn't really receive a lot of attention for her horror fiction until The Haunting of Hill House. And a lot of the attention she's gotten has been posthumous. So yeah, yeah, that's it seems to be the way it goes with some of the best writers, unfortunately. But um, yeah, and even in her horror fiction, which is mostly what I've what I've read, I haven't delved that much into her other stuff. Um, But yeah, she, she brings in that domestic aspect to it, where it's about like, the horror of everyday life 
yes. of like mundane life, which I love so much. Like she finds the weird and the creepy in stuff that's otherwise supposed to be benign. You know, it's just, oh, she's great. Yeah, <laughs> One of my favorite horror authors. <laughs> yes. And that's what I've definitely tried to do with The Devil and Mrs. Davenport. There's a lot of um, fabulous type elements in the book where my main character sees things that could be or could not be real. And so then there's the whole question about like, is her mental health stable and all of that? So I kind of pull into that and, you know, we have a little bit of talk about how the mental health care uh, system was during the 1950s, which is absolutely terrifying. Not great. (laughs) Not great. I mean, goodness. I mean, just what they did to Sylvia Plath. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It was so, bad. I mean, bad, it's bad. not it's not great now, but compared to the 1950s, it's uh, yeah. world's better. <laughs> Overuse of ECT over like ECT for everything. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was it was it was grim. <laughs> Very much <Yeah>. so. <laughs> and they were still lobotomizing people then oh, too. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Oh my god, it's Shockingly. just horrifying. How, yeah, how prevalent lobotomies were. Yeah, it's disturbing. Um, creeps me out, but that's great. I can't wait to read your book because it promises to be creepy in that respect. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a lot of little creepy aspects like that. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. Oh, I'll, I'm sure I will. Did you do any research into some of the um, some of the studies that were going on in the mid 20th century about like psychic powers, like MK Ultra and stuff like that? <laughs> MK Ultra, also uh, J.B. Ryan yeah. and the Duke Parapsychology Lab. That was kind of my main area study also Edgar Cayce oh yeah 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 um so there are lots of different things that were happening during the 1950s with the paranormal and parapsychology and parapsychology was still in still is very much considered a pseudoscience and a lot of times these um, people who were embarking on investigating paranormal activity were um, scientists, sometimes they were psychologists, sometimes psychiatrists, sometimes they were journalists. Um, And so they kind of developed into little subgroups where they focused on that. But J.B. Ryan was one of the first to actually get grants and money um, directed toward the study of psychic phenomena. And he actually, with the help of his researchers, proved the existence of uh, psychokinesis, telekinesis, and uh, telepathy so yes which a lot of people don't know this because they don't get as nerdy about this stuff as I do but recent studies that have been done like in the past 10 years are starting to back up a lot of that research that was done at the Duke Parapsychology Lab too so it's still being investigated here and there I think it's getting Mm -hmm. a little more attention as we kind of move into an acceptance of some weird shit is out there and like we don't know everything there is to know about physics and in in large part the ufo phenomenon i think is helping kind of break down that resistance people had throughout the 20th century to like no 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 we we got it all figured out we had the age of enlightenment everything is scientific there is no nothing that exists beyond what our our understanding of physics can define except that there is like yeah. <laughs> now we got all these governments of all these countries being like, yeah, there's actually like weird shit flying around in the skies that we cannot explain that completely defies our understanding of physics. So something's weird out there. We got to maybe figure that out. 
So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So recent studies um, by a few different universities now are starting to back up some of that earlier Duke research, which is really interesting to see that like, yeah, they're like, yeah, remote viewing, that's apparently a real thing. And using coordinates for some reason makes it work. We don't know why. (laughs) We don't know why yet, but you give somebody coordinates and they, if they're experienced at remote viewing they can tell you exactly what's at those fucking coordinates it's spooky (laughs) so yeah Yeah, there was a huge um study into that you know for espionage purposes uh during the mid-century because we were fighting against the (laughs) the whole russian red scare and we were afraid that russia was going to discover all of this remote viewing and uh so there was that's part of why the government was okay with funding some of this research is because they saw the potential for espionage yeah. purposes. There's always so. got to be some like military industrial complex reason to, <laughs> to research Absolutely. it, right? Or else it's not going to get any yeah. attention. <laughs> Especially to throw money at it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's got to benefit somehow the structures of power. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pretty wild. Of course. Always. I'm really interested to see what the emergence of AI is going to bring in terms of like a greater understanding of consciousness and like how some of this stuff works, maybe, or maybe it won't bring any understanding of how some of this stuff works. Like, I don't know if AI will help us understand remote viewing and psychic stuff, but, um, but it's interesting. It's, it's just fascinating to see uh, our understanding of the world broadening so rapidly right now. Yeah, I agree. And you know, we've talked about Carl Jung and, you know, he was very much a proponent of collective consciousness and believing that some, we have somewhat telepathic abilities uh, with one another and with just the consciousness as a whole. And so I've seen that play out many times in my life where I'll be thinking about someone and then they'll call and um, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, it's like, well, is AI part of that equation? Is AI tapping into that kind of collective consciousness and if so what does that say about the sentience of ai i know that's that's gripping to me that question feels very urgent and important to me and that's that's what i'm working on right now i'm writing a novel that's um contemporary instead of historical so it's a bit of a change for me but it's about like right now how everyone is freaking out about ai and not knowing what to make of it i just i find the turmoil interesting so i'm like ah how can i construct a novel plot out of this um, so I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I don't know if anyone's going to be interested in buying it, but <laughs> but we'll like see what happens. Awesome, awesome <laughs> I, concept. I mean, I like it, and and I feel like I'm a good writer to explore it because I'm not like afraid of it. You know, I've noticed. I'm sure you've noticed. Writers and other artists, everybody, everyone, everywhere is freaking out about AI, and like. I get it. I get why it's weird. I think I shared in our group chat, I think I told you guys about the weird experience I had with AI where it predicted something that I had, yeah, something that I'd already written in my manuscript. I don't know how to explain that. And the AI didn't know how to explain it. It was like, uh, I did not do that intentionally. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it was just, it was one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me. And, and, um, fascinating. Like it was just, so interesting that it could happen at all that I was just like whoa like galaxy braining over it like how can I how can I turn this into a broader narrative so yeah I don't know it's it raises so many interesting questions about reality about minds about sentience and um what a fascinating time to be alive to like watch all of this all of these leaps in understanding hopefully come to fruition we'll we'll see maybe we'll remain ignorant little dumbasses (laughs) living under our rocks 
but you know, time will tell. <laughs> and, it, and you know, it brings up the question too: What is consciousness? You know, what what is it? There are so many levels to consciousness, and uh, that's something that I did a lot of research with when I was writing *The Devil and Mrs. Davenport* about like the different layers of consciousness and their purpose and what happens to us after we are no longer living in human bodies too, um, which I don't want to get into religion too much, but I tend to like embrace the mystery of it. And I would like to think that in some way our consciousness outlives our human bodies. So yeah. All interesting yeah. I, I feel the same way about it where, where I, I like the mystery aspect. I like the fact that we probably will never really know like we'll probably gain a little more understanding you know over the decades or the millennia or whatever um, but i don't think we're ever going to get it all figured out because i don't think something like uh divinity or whatever you want to call it can be figured out i mean i think it's right. just beyond <laughs> beyond like a human brain to process and and yeah i mean goodness knows how how we go on or in what form or what consciousness is like after death but um i mean something something must yeah, happen something because consciousness is a thing like it doesn't just it doesn't just go away the second a brain turns off like it is it's still out there floating around it's very weird it's energy you know i, I look yeah. at it that way it's energy um something very strange happened uh when my sister and i were keeping vigil by our mother um as she was on her deathbed there was at one point in time where I very strongly felt the presence of my dad, his spirit in the room. Wow. And my sister and I looked at each other at the same exact time. And she looked at me and she said, dad's here. Oh. I hadn't said a word to her, but we both knew that my dad was in the room. And so something like that, I, I didn't make that up. It could be that we maybe had a telepathic communication between one another where we were thinking the same thing at the same time. But there was just a shift in the way the room felt yeah. as well. Wow. And so I very much believe that some part of us goes on after death. I'm not sure what it looks like. I'm not sure what happens. But it is an interesting conversation to have. And I, I just, I'm very much an agnostic in that I'm open to... Um, not knowing things and being okay with not knowing things and not trying to prescribe everything and put it into a box. So, yeah, I feel the same way. And I, my life improved significantly when I was able to get to that point where I was just like, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know anything yeah. and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's fine. Just be, be a nice person. And exactly. Like, like maybe, maybe the point is not knowing, yeah. you know, like maybe that's what we're here yeah. for is to not know any of this. <laughs> <laughs> who knows absolutely absolutely <laughs> but it is fascinating to think about ai and the implications with ai my husband's very fascinated by that as well yeah. he's in the tech uh, sector he's a software uh, engineer so he thinks about ai a lot yeah one of the characters in the book i'm working on right now is is a software engineer who thinks about ai a lot <laughs> and comes to some yes. interesting <laughs> conclusions about it um that's been very difficult research to do as a novelist is like trying to make sense of like the ins and outs of all of this from a from a technical aspect how it works yeah. and like how people make it it's very much beyond me and i ironically or perhaps not ironically have been using ai to teach me about this stuff i like ask it questions <laughs> like how do you work how does this function and 
and it will give me answers and then I'll be like, okay, but like, what does this mean? Yeah. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it trying to understand it from like, from a technical aspect and like from the perspective of someone whose job is to construct or like work with this thing is just like, this is, I definitely went into the right profession because this is beyond me. <laughs> I don't know what the hell is going on. I hear you. I hear you. My husband will tell me about some of the things he's doing. I'm like, I don't understand what you're talking about. It's like a different language. It really is a different language in a lot of ways. Uh, tech and software and all. For sure. Yeah. I, I've also found it really interesting, the range of reactions I've been seeing from people. Like there are some people like me who are like, okay, well, we'll just see where this goes, you know? And then quite a number of people I've found, especially in creative fields who are like hardline will not have anything to do with AI and will not have anything to do with anyone who has anything to do with AI. Like I've had people tell me on Twitter when I've mentioned, cause I post pretty frequently about like interesting conversations I have with AI. Um, people will show up and be like, well, I'm not going to read your work because you're using it in, in your writing. I'm like, but I'm not generating text with it. I write everything myself. I'm using it as a research aid. They're like, well, I don't think anybody should mess with it. I'm like, Okay, I mean that's very dogmatic. Right, about exactly. That. I'm like that's that's your choice. Like it, it, it's been the, part of the reason why I tweet about it so much is because it draws reactions from people, and I want to observe like how people are thinking and feeling about it right now, so I can put that into my novel. <laughs> so I'm like yeah. I'm baiting people into reacting, so I can watch them like a creep. But um, but yeah, it's been interesting. Like the people. So we have a a friend. Paul and I have this friend, Madeline, who's um, who's an artist and has been working as a video game artist for a long time. And she is pretty upset about the whole AI thing, understandably, because, you know, art for video games might be one of the first things to get outsourced to AI. And I do think that there will be room for humans to work with AI in, in that field, you know, but to her, it's, it's, it's devastating because it's just a complete change in, in the work environment she's known and like the work that she can do. And so, I understand her being upset with it, but she's like, yeah, she pulled all of her art offline. She's like, I don't want AI to access it and like learn from my work without my permission. And like, I understand that perspective too, but like, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's any stop in this train. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I don't think so either. And I think it, you know, all started with facial recognition software too. And, you know, you have the whole deep fake thing that's happening as well. Yeah. Uh, which really freaks my husband out. Um, but yeah, the whole thing with art, um, I don't particularly feel threatened by AI. I feel like there's a human component with art that I can sense is lacking with full on AI reproductions or full on AI artwork. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, I do think it's fun. I mean, I've definitely, yeah, messed around with it a little bit, but I would still always like hire a human artist of to do any kind of artwork that I really needed, you know, as far as like for promotional materials or something like that. Cause I'm really passionate about supporting the arts. Um, but yeah, it is, it is kind of interesting to hear the different takes on how AI is affecting artists. Yeah. I but think. I, I have to say, I mean, you were a photographer back when Photoshop became a thing and back when digital cameras became a thing. We were both working in photography back during those times. And you remember how everyone freaked out. <laughs> like, 
everyone lost their damn minds when Photoshop was like yeah. freely accessible to everyone. I remember that. I remember people freaking out when the internet came into everyone's homes. I remember people freaking out to a lesser degree, but still freaking out a little bit when we all started using smartphones. Like we freak out about technological changes and then we adapt to them and then we keep on keeping on. And mm -hmm. I just don't see how this is going to be any different. I think the changes are going to be bigger and more dramatic. And I think yeah. the rapidity of change is going to pose some interesting problems. Like how do we deal with deep fakes? You know, like that's, that's a great question. We should figure that out. So I think the sort of hailstorm of problems we have to solve because of the emergence of AI is making people anxious and upset, but also like, we have been through catastrophic, seismic, technological changes before. And um, and we have figured out ways to carry on with them and to adapt those things yeah. so that we can do our jobs better. Like, I was in photography before and after Photoshop or, you know, before and after it became widely accessible to everyone. You know, prior to that, it was, it was a pretty niche uh, application mm -hmm. that people were only using in certain fields. But you know, I adapted my photography process to use it and it actually made it faster and easier to, <laughs> to like batch process my photos and stuff. Like we will, we'll do fine. Um, we're going to find ways. Yeah. And it's cheaper too. My goodness. Yeah. You know, 35 cents a frame for film to get it developed. Like, come on. I mean, it opened the door for more photographers to learn photography. The digital yes. revolution did uh, because it wasn't so expensive for them to do it. And also, um, you know, I've there was a lot of buzz right before I left the industry about how good uh, phone cameras were becoming. And a lot of photographers were worried about that and intimidated by that. Like, well, what if the wedding guests end up taking better pictures? And we, well, but, you know, we know as artists that it's about the eye. It's about what you yes. see that matters when you're a photographer two different photographers can take a picture of the same thing and have completely different results. Yes, completely. And so it's how you see it and how you use light and how you compose an image that, that makes you an artist. It's not the equipment that you use. I agree. And I think that is like you were talking about earlier, you can kind of detect a difference in AI generated art versus, you know, human made. And that, that is real. And that's important, I think, because mm -hmm. I don't think AI will ever be able to make art that speaks to humans in the same way human-made art does. AI can make really cool shit. Like, it's powerful. Yeah. You can make all kinds of interesting stuff with it, stuff that you would never be able to make, you know, as a human. Um, and I think it can make stuff that will replace the things that humans are making that are not, uh, that don't have a message in them, that are not made for a purpose other than just to make money, right? Like, yeah, AI is going to replace the folks who are just cranking out erotica to make money. It's not going to replace the people who are writing artistic erotica that actually touches your soul too, you know? Like, <laughs> right. like uh, there's, a, there's a difference. There's a scale of like why things are made within any given art form. Um, and I think the people who are doing it purely for money and for no other consideration might face some challenges with it but the people who are doing it for something beyond just the money and far be it from me to say that you shouldn't make money from your work I mean that's why I do it you know <laughs> but but the people who are doing it for something in addition to just the money who actually want to put a message into it um, AI won't be able to put in messages that that will really speak to a human like on that deep deep 
personal level because it's not it doesn't matter how smart it is it doesn't matter how advanced it is how powerful it is it is not a human and it can't be a human just like we i could never write a novel that an ai could read and be like damn that really captures what it's like to be an ai i don't fucking know i'm not an ai (laughs) (laughs) i can't do it (laughs) exactly yeah exactly you can't replicate spirit you can't replicate intention and it's a tool. I, I, I view it like a lot I view a lot of technology. It's a tool that you can use. Exactly. And, and I'm already using it and I am finding it incredibly powerful and useful. And I ended off season one by saying like, look, it's going to be like two or three months until I come back with season two. And I don't know what this AI thing is going to be doing by then. I don't know what it's going to be like. Um, I have started using AI since then and I love it. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's so cool. Like, it's so simple to get the information I need. And you have to, if it's any critical information that, like, needs to be accurate within a novel, um, you have to double check it because it's still young. It's still learning. It's not necessarily going to give you accurate info. It's using language prediction to find the information, which is not the same as using, like, as evaluating the quality of the data. Um, so so it's not quite to the point yet where where it can be trusted with the objective facts quote unquote that it gives you but it will be there soon probably by the end of season two here it'll be at the point where it's like yeah everything's objectively verified now and you can trust it as a research tool but even just for little details that are just put into my books for color i can get them so much faster in by using ai than by using like google or wikipedia yeah it's like an upgraded search engine, you know, yeah. that that knows a lot more than just Google. Yeah, and what's really important right. about it, what is so game-changing about it is that you can ask it like in a conversational tone to clarify information for you. So I'll type in like uh what are some birds that would be singing in the morning in uh the Netherlands in this region, you know, cuz I need to drop in some bird song in my novel. It'll give me information and I can then take that information and ask it to clarify like wait when you say this do you mean this or do you mean that and it'll like I mean it's just so much faster than going to google finding a paper reading an entire paper and gleaning the information I need from it so it's huge game changer like it's shaved so much time after how long it takes me to write a book (laughs) absolutely and I think about it too from a disability standpoint you know how much of a game changer Alexa and Siri and things like that have been for people who have certain disabilities and AI could benefit the community that way as well. Yeah, definitely. Like if it's difficult for you to type, you can speak those questions into Alexa. It can go directly to AI and get you the information you need. Awesome. So cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. It's, uh, I know people are freaking out because it's different. (laughs) It's different from what we've (laughs) known before, but you know, I'm old. I, I saw how the world was different before the internet and after, like, it's going to be okay. I, re- I remember yeah. the hysteria well of everyone claiming the internet was the beast of revelation and it was going to destroy our lives and ah! Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> we live through satanic panic. Oh, my God. 80s. We remember it well. <laughs> one, yeah. one of my favorite things Pokemon. to- Yeah. <laughs> Pokemon or devils that live in your pocket. Uh, One of my favorite things to do now when I knit is um, I'll find old like satanic panic videos from the 80s and 90s and just play them on YouTube. I make like a playlist (laughs) and I'm knitting while I'm like watching all these people being like, Pokemon's going to drag your children to hell. I love it so much. (laughs) It's great. My kid loves those videos too. It's 
we watch them together often. I, they're just rich. It's it's and the the funny thing is just how earnest these people are. I mean, it's 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 hilarious and also terrifying at the same time. Yeah, true. <laughs> it is a little scary yes. that they got that worked up over something so benign. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what are you, have you figured out what your book's going to be after The Devil and Mrs. Davenport? Or are you not at that point yet? I am. I I just sent uh, two emails to my agent this week with uh, pitching her a couple ideas and she likes them both. So uh, oh, yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so now I'm scrambling because I need synopses and uh, sample chapters. Uh, but yeah, I mean, who knows if they'll sell or not. Yeah, we're kind of in that amorphous stage still. Yeah, that's always a fun place to be. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm excited about both concepts, and so hopefully that will help carry the pitches. So. Yeah, no kidding. Is, are they like similar settings again with Ozark stuff? Or are you stepping outside no, of that? I'm stepping outside of You the don't Ozark. have to tell me details if you don't want to, <laughs> but I'm just curious. I'll share a little bit. Uh, both stories are on opposite coast so one story is on the west coast and the other is on the east Ooh. so I can share that much Ooh. Um, I think yeah. you should do both of them I'm gonna send out vibes to the universe for a two-book deal <laughs> yeah I'm hoping that I can um, get get paid for them so that I can plan a research trip to my east coast uh, setting yeah especially. oh my gosh yeah. that's gonna be fun I have never have I ever been to the east coast I don't think I have. That's really sad. I mean, Florida. That doesn't count, though, right? <laughs> I guess it counts. That's it's the southeast coast, at least. It's, yeah. yeah I've been to Florida, and I've been to New York. I have not been to New York yet. I feel like such a ding-dong. I want to go. I've just, like, haven't had the opportunity yet. I need to just plan a trip there. Just be like, I'm going to New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the sake of it. Some of our friends that live there would be great. Yeah. I tend to travel only if I have, like, some reason to go like there's a conference somewhere oh wait i have been to the east coast i've been to dc for the there historical novel society conference that counts. <laughs> that counts but you know that's the problem with traveling for conferences is you're just doing the conference thing the whole time so you don't get to like get out and explore it more i need to i need to prioritize travel it's really sad that i've just like the most exotic place i've ever been is canada which is where i live now so doesn't count <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so difficult during the pandemic, especially to do any kind of traveling. Yeah. So, and it's still kind of scary. I always kind of worry whenever I get on an airplane. Yeah. Masks on. And, yeah. I, I hate yeah. airplanes anyway, because I'm very claustrophobic. So just like being in a tube pressed close together with people is extremely unpleasant for me. Um, yeah, this has been a great excuse for me to not fly anywhere. The whole COVID thing. I'm like, I'm just not going. <laughs> I can't yeah. trust all these COVID carriers. Um, so I've been taking the train a lot. I'm taking uh, the, the train down to San Antonio for the Historical Novel Society conference this summer. That's going to be fun. Um, but yeah, that's... Too. I'm excited to meet you in person. Oh, it's going to be, be so great. fun. Is this, yeah. is this your first time doing HNS or have you done it before? It's my first time doing it oh. uh, in person. Yeah, I did it virtually a couple years ago. It is the best conference I've ever been to consistently. Just like they knock it out of the park every time. Like great programming, great atmosphere. Everyone who works on H&S is just awesome. So you're going to have a super good time. And it will ruin you for all other writing conferences forever. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. That old black magic has me in its spell That old black 
weave so well Those icy fingers up and down my spine The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine The same old tingle that I feel inside And then that elevator starts its ride And down and down I go Round and round I go Like a leaf that's caught in the tide I should stay away But what can I do? I hear your name And I'm a flame A flame with such a burning desire That only your kiss can put out the fire For you're the lover I have waited for The mate that fate had me created for And every time your lips meet mine Darling, darling Spin, loving the spin I'm in Under that old black magic called love <laughs> concentration of elementary particles. In one gigantic detonation, the contents of this cosmic fireball were hurled outward in all directions. I recently learned that there's a crisis in the scientific field of cosmology. Like, they literally call it a crisis. They just sling this around. All the cosmologists are talking about their crisis. Cosmology, if you aren't familiar with that term, is the scientific study of the universe, all the big stuff that's out there in space. And in particular, cosmology seeks to understand the shape, character, fate, and origins of the universe. The crisis in cosmology revolves around the fact that for the past century, more or less, we've been operating under the assumption that the universe originated from a Big Bang. We don't know what that Big Bang was, what precipitated it, what might have existed in its vicinity at the moment when it happened. We have no idea about any of this stuff. Cosmologists and other scientists like astrophysicists have been trying to figure all of that out for nearly a hundred years. 
What we do know is that the observations we can make about the stars, light, gravity, and many other aspects of the natural world all work pretty well with this concept of the Big Bang as the starting place for everything, and since our observations seem to support the idea, that idea must be more or less correct. Except there's a problem. Most of our observations of space and of our own solar system and planet never actually fit the Big Bang model all that well, and in fact scientists had to make a lot of funny concessions and suppositions to get most of our observations to work with the Big Bang model at all. For example, I'm sure you've probably heard of something called dark matter. Dark matter is one of these concessions. No one has ever found evidence for dark matter's literal existence, it's just this hypothetical that we have to assume probably exists somewhere in reality, and we have to assume that this hypothetical thing we've never actually collected any evidence for has certain effects on the stuff we can observe, because if we don't make this assumption about dark matter interfering with matter that we can observe, the whole concept of the Big Bang falls apart. The Big Bang doesn't actually make any sense unless we posit this thing that we actually don't have any solid evidence for and haven't found any evidence for despite nearly a century of searching for it. And dark matter isn't the only problem with the Big Bang, there are several different ways in which the Big Bang by itself just does not fit with many of our observations of galaxies and distance and the behavior of light, and cosmologists have made other hypotheticals to kind of paper over these gaps so they could continue working with the Big Bang model. The hope all along was, I assume, that over time, as cosmologists gain more data and knowledge about the universe, the Big Bang hypothesis would pan out to be as rigorous and correct as it appeared to be when it was first proposed. So they kept working with that model, even though everybody knew that there were some pretty serious misalignments between the Big Bang and our actual observations. What happened instead was that the misalignments got more misaligned, and entirely new misalignments were found, and since the deployment of the James Webb Telescope in 2021, the very serious problems with the Big Bang have multiplied at an alarming rate. The crisis in cosmology is this. The better we get at observing our universe, the less our previous model for its operation, shape, origin, and operating principles makes sense and cosmologists all around the planet have reached a point where they are forced to acknowledge, as the alchemists did when Lavoisier discovered the true nature of air, that all of their assumptions about their science might be totally incorrect. In unmanned astronomical observatories, in manned laboratories, and in spacecraft orbiting the planets, Instruments probe the near and distant environments of space and open new windows on the universe. I'm not super forceful about this on the podcast, but I'm sure astute listeners will have gleaned from various things I've said here and there that I do actually practice magic. This is just a part of my everyday life, and as far as I can tell, it's how reality operates, and it's always something I've noticed about the world and have been able to directly and consciously do. Long before I had words for this, before I understood that what I was doing was what modern-day occultists refer to as practical magic, which means magic used in practice to achieve specific and very particular results, it was just something I did because it was in my nature to do it. 
I observed that reality was not as fixed as other people claimed it to be, that within certain parameters, reality was subject to my will, and to the wills of other particularly strong-willed people. So I shaped reality for myself from the time I was a child, and only well into my 30s did I develop an interest in esoterica, and then I realized, ah, this is that thing I've always just been able to do. This is something I maintain relative silence about in my day-to-day -day life, for obvious reasons, because people think you're crazy if you admit to practicing magic. But as we head into this cosmological crisis where we must re-examine our most fundamental ideas about what the universe is, where it comes from, and how it operates, uh, maybe it's like a little safer for me to kind of come out of the closet about this stuff? Maybe my ideas and my practices will prove to be a whole lot less crazy than you might be thinking. To explore the universe at these extremes, the scientist builds instruments that extend his reach and his vision. His great telescopic eye has the light-gathering power of a million human eyes. It peers not only into the depths of space, but far back in time. There was a time when the alchemists had the best model for understanding how the world worked. Eventually, as we learned more about our world, as we observed more and noted that our actual observations did not align with what our alchemists were telling us we should be observing, that model was proven to be incorrect, or at least incomplete in some pretty fundamental ways. There was also a time when the geocentric model of the universe was the accepted reality. It explained our long observation that certain stars, which we now know to be planets, moved across the night sky. But the more our advancing technology allowed us to observe of the night sky and of other aspects of nature, the less sense the geocentric model made. A great and even deadly struggle erupted between existing power structures and the people who insisted that their observations of reality did not align with the geocentric model, until finally all rational people were forced to concede that the Earth was not the center of creation, but rather was one planet of many orbiting our sun, and that our sun was one of many in our galaxy. Alchemy, geocentrism, they were the best models we had at one time for understanding the things we observed, but it was always the observations that were important, not the model that proposed to explain them. The study of the universe spans almost inconceivable extremes of size and distance and time. From the vast island of stars we call a galaxy, tiny atom and the particles that comprise it. What I have observed is that this thing I can do, which I believe all people can do if they approach it in the right way, isn't just mental exercises, it's not just affirmative thinking or whatever. I actually am having measurable impacts on shifting the trajectory and outcomes of my own reality via my will. It's convenient to call it magic because, uh, what else should we call it, you know? <laughs> But there's nothing supernatural about it. It's merely a natural process that humanity hasn't yet begun to understand, and maybe because humanity has been cleaving a little too dogmatically to convenient models for how reality works, that were established during the Enlightenment period and never questioned too closely for hundreds of years. Someday, long after I'm dead, humanity will understand what this is and how it works and how everyone can use it. 
At that point, it'll be given a name, much more sophisticated and reassuring to the rational mind than magic. Maybe it'll be called psychokinetic influence, or mind-matter manifestation, or linking to the overmind, who knows. I've begun recording my own processes and results in meticulous detail, the same way alchemists recorded their processes and results. I'm just one humble, ultimately unimportant, conscious practitioner of magic out of many of us who exist. Seriously, way more people than you might suspect are intentional users of practical magic, and in particular, some of the most successful people are quietly and privately magicians. Game recognize game, magicians can spot each other by the way we use our words. But as the crisis in cosmology continues to accelerate at exponential speed, we're approaching this threshold of a new frontier so rapidly, who knows whether the notes I'm taking now, recording my processes and outcomes, my methods, my timelines, my observations, my little collection of notes, along with the notes other magicians are keeping, might actually help us one day to understand something fundamental and tremendously important about the universe. If my small life and the things I've been able to achieve with it can someday help humanity gain a slightly clearer picture of the operating system of reality, then it will be a life well-lived no matter what happens with my artistic career. So, you know, maybe I'm not wrong. And no matter what other people might think about me, I know I'm not crazy. Cosmology has reached a point where cosmologists themselves are almost universally, pardon the pun, forced to admit that the Big Bang doesn't actually make a lick of sense, at least not as we currently model it. The model has outlived its usefulness, as Ptolemy's model of the geocentric solar system did some 500 years ago. Cosmology is now in the process of resolving its big central crisis and developing a new model for reality that fits with what can actually be observed without the need for all these suppositions like dark matter. When cosmologists develop a new model that aligns more closely with our actual observations, we might soon come to understand that the reality we experience has much more to do with consciousness and mind and observation itself than with any fixed material circumstances beyond our control and beyond our ability to interact with. Resolution of cosmology's crisis will no doubt join the rise of AI in marking the opening of the new era. We're about to discover an entirely new realm of science, of naturalism, and of knowledge itself, the same way the alchemists, after the discovery of air, found an entirely new understanding of the material world. We now call the alchemist's discovery chemistry, and it is foundational to almost every science that helps us comprehend and predict the reality we live in. And yet chemistry had its origins in this pseudoscience, or more accurately, this proto-science, this thing modern scientists look back on with amusement and even scorn. But it was the alchemists who gave us modern science. It was the alchemists who discovered the fact of chemistry, and they did it by prioritizing their own observations, by having the courage and the curiosity and the intellectual rigor to go where observation led them, not where dogma told them their conclusions must inevitably lead. That's all I've got for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check out Paulette Kennedy's books. You can find them all at paulettekennedy.com. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review since that transforms the algorithm in my alembic and refines it so I can find more curious weirdos like yourself. 
Sound collage components came from the following YouTube channels. Periscope Film, Pedro Alvarez, and Past Perfect Vintage Music. Featured music was That Old Black Magic by Margaret Whiting in the public domain. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds.